just recently I was reading a book that was supposed to help me be a better parent because I need all the help I can get. And I hope I learned a few lessons. But there was a really interesting list inside of this book that I wanted to share with you. It was called The Marks of a Healthy Family. The book was entitled On Becoming Preteen Wise by Gary Ezzo and Robert Bucknam. And I would encourage anybody that uh, has kids between the ages of 8 and 12 to get this book. It's really helpful. Very good. But it had this list of seven marks of a healthy family. The first mark, healthy families share core values that all members embrace and submit to. Number two, healthy families recognize that maintaining the marriage is a priority for family health. Number three, healthy families know how to communicate with one another. Number four, in healthy families, parents are not afraid to say, I was wrong. Number five, healthy families choose conflict resolution over conflict avoidance. Number six, healthy families make time to be with each other and attend one another's events. And number seven, healthy families have a corporate sense of responsibility to all members. As I was reading this list, of course I was thinking about my family and what this meant for us, but the, the more I get looking at this list and the, the author's explanation of them, I thought, man, that is actually a perfect list for the marks of a healthy church family. When we take a look at these seven things, these are the seven things that we ought to be doing as a congregation to improve our family health. And so I just thought that we might use this list as an outline for us today to learn about the marks of a healthy church family and how as we follow these things, we can have healthier and better relationships with one another. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious and almighty Father in heaven, we love you and we're thankful for your love and your mercy. And we pray that you would continue to be with us and help us to be a strong family of yours. Help us to bind close to one another so that we can be bound closer to you. We love you and we thank you that you have loved us, sending your son to die for us. Father, we thank you that you've offered forgiveness for us. We've, we've committed sins. We've fallen short of your will sometimes in atrocious ways. And we pray that you would forgive us and we're thankful that you offer that to us and help us to overcome the tempter. Help us to take the way of escape that you have provided in each temptation. Help us to live for you. Help us as a congregation to be a stronger family. Help us to follow these keys and all others that are found in your word so that we might glorify you because that's what this is all about. We don't want to just have good relationships with one another. We want to have great relationship with you. We love you, Father. Through your Son we pray. Amen. That first key was the healthy family share core values that all members embrace and submit to. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10... 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And we can look at the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul wrote something similar there. In Philippians 2 and verse 2 he said, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's very clear that God expects a congregation, He expects His universal congregation to share the same core values, to be intent upon the same purpose, to maintain the same love, to be united, to share these core values. But what are those values? Some churches today value emotional experience. Some churches today value personal fulfillment. Some churches today value social welfare. What are we to value? What is the core value that ought to drive us? I think 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 provides that for us. In 1 Timothy 
chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul wrote to Timothy, In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What is the church? And thereby, what should every individual congregation be? It's the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we have to value. We have to value the truth. Because as John chapter 8 and verse 32 says, it's the truth that will set us free. We're not set free by our experiences, by our emotions and our feelings. We're set free by the truth. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth, he said to the Father. We'll be sanctified by the truth. We won't be sanctified by our experiences or our feelings or our personal fulfillment. We'll be sanctified by the truth. What must we value as a congregation? What must we share as the core driving value, as the governing principle around everything that we do? It needs to be the truth that sets free and sanctifies. But there's another aspect here also. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus said, Do not worry, excuse me, verse 33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. We need to value that. His kingdom, His righteousness, His rule in our lives. That is what we need to value. Not our personal fulfillment, but rather our fulfilling God's will. That's what we need to value. That's what we need to hold up on a pedestal. That's what we need to preach about. That's what we need to talk about. That's what we need to cheer for. We need to have the same shared core value of truth and God's will and righteousness. And we can have that when we base our lives and our congregation's life on the Word of God. As Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. We have got to value truth. We've got to value God's Word and God's will. The second mark, you may remember, was a healthy families recognize that maintaining the marriage is a priority for family health. We think about this in our regular families. What all too often happens, and this is very sad, when kids come into the family, far too often the family and the parents' lives are now centered around that child. And everything is about that child. And the parents are all about developing their relationship with that child. And all of a sudden, one day, they wake up and look at the person that's laying next to them in bed, and they realize, I don't even know who this person is because they have been so intent on dealing with their children that they haven't maintained their marriage. And sadly, what all too often happens in that scenario is that when they wake up and realize, I don't know this person, when they start to try to get to know them, they realize, I don't like this person. And it destroys the marriage. And in our day and age, few people are deciding to go ahead and keep the marriage together for the sake of the family. And it destroys the family. You see, if we want to maintain family health, we've got to focus on maintaining the relationship in our marriages. And that's really the same as it is for us within the church. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own life loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, what Paul says about this is as he's talking about husbands and wives, he says, you know, in reality, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. The church is the bride. Christ is the groom. And that is the first relationship that we need to be working on. We, as part of the bride of Christ, must first and foremost work upon our marriage relationship with Christ. Too often, we think that the foundation of having a healthy church is making sure that all our relationships are going well with one another. The foundation for having a healthy church is for each of us first and foremost to make sure that our relationship with Christ is right. When you and I have the proper relationship with Jesus, guess what's going to happen with our relationship with one another? When you're serving the Lord and I'm serving the Lord and we come together to serve the Lord, we're going to be getting along. And we're going to be working through our problems. We're going to be dealing with issues and we'll have a great family relationship. But first, we have to work on our relationship with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 Paul told the Philippians, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel." How did they have congregational unity? How did they have family health? The very first thing that they worked on was walking according to the gospel of Christ. Each and every single individual. Instead of, instead of dealing just with their relationship to one another, the first thing they had to do was make sure that they were walking according to the gospel of Jesus. And then they could have the unity and the same mind and that healthy family. Are you working on your relationship with Jesus through prayer and Bible study? Through self-discipline? We've got to begin there. Sadly today... The pendulum is swinging over to where we're all so worried about our relationships with one another that we get to know one another really well, but we don't have any idea how to help each other because we don't know what Jesus would do. We've got to have a great relationship with Jesus. We've got to work on that marriage relationship if we're going to have a healthy family. Thirdly, healthy families know how to communicate with one another. We could preach whole sermons on communication. In fact, we have preached whole sermons on communication. And I will try not to preach a sermon within a sermon this morning. We're just going to deal with this briefly. Perhaps the best book I have ever read on communication, apart from the Bible, is a book that's entitled Crucial Conversations. And I just want to share with you a definition that they have. They they use the word dialogue instead of communication. Their definition of dialogue is the free flow of meaning between two or more people. Listen to this quote. At the core of every successful conversation lies the free flow of relevant information. People openly and honestly express their opinions, share their feelings, and articulate their theories. They willingly and capably share their views, even when their ideas are controversial and unpopular. 
See, the fact is, when two or more people come together to talk about something and to communicate with one another, we all have our separate pools of meaning that come from our preconceived ideas, that come from our experiences, that come from how we were raised. But we have these ideas in our mind based on all of that, and it's all different because we've all had different experiences. We've all uh, had different ideas. We've all done different things. And so we're, we're going to, as we look at it, it's going to be different. And that's really a good thing that we open up our ideas to what others are suggesting, and we at least communicate with them. Even in the end, if we decide that, nope, they were wrong, at least we opened up and listened. And so the concept is being able to come together and share all of that relevant information to be able to communicate with one another. Whether we're dealing with a problem or whether we're dealing with an idea, it doesn't matter. We need to be able to come together and communicate with one another to share the relevant pools of meaning to share our theories and our ideas and our opinions on things, to communicate well. Every family, if they want to have help, has to learn how to communicate. And we've got to learn to do the same thing. I'm sure you know that I'm about to turn to James chapter 1 and verse 19. I think that James chapter 1 and verse 19, in order to keep us, as I said, from preaching a sermon within a sermon, covers the basic concept that we need to learn to work on. I understand that James 1 and verse 19 actually is dealing with our relationship to God and His Word. But I do think that this verse provides a great model for communication with all people. In James 1 and verse 19 it says, This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We have to learn to communicate. And when we talk about communicating, we typically think about talking. If I want to communicate well, we think I've got to learn how to how to make my points well and how to back them up with illustrations. But the first thing we have to realize is if I want to communicate well, I've got to not jump the gun to talking so quickly. If I want to learn to communicate, I first need to learn to listen. Be quick to hear, it says. I need to learn to listen to others. I need to learn to listen to others to understand, not just listen for them to take a breath so that I can start talking. I need to listen to figure out what is it that they're feeling, what is it that they're thinking, why are they saying this? Even if on the surface I'm thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I need to ask myself, why would a normal, rational person think this? And start getting into their heart and mind and listening, and then we can start that communication process. Then I can speak. But I need to be slow to speak. However, at some point, I need to speak. I need to share my pool of meaning with others. But when I do that, I need to remember Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. When I speak, I've taken my time to listen so that I can understand, so that now when I open my mouth and start talking, I can add grace to those who hear. If I can't add grace to those who hear, if my words can't be a gift to them, then I need to just keep my mouth shut. And the third key it says is, be slow to anger. How easy it is for us to hear something, and whether we have perceived it correctly or incorrectly, jump to some type of angry conclusion. To let our dander come up, to to raise our backs and get angry and upset, and to respond angrily. We've got to learn to keep that in check. We've got to learn what the proverbial said, that a soft answer turns away wrath. We've got to learn to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. If we're going to have a healthy family, we have to learn how to communicate with one another. That, doesn't mean, that means that we don't avoid one another, but we get with one another and talk with one another and listen to one another and keep our tempers under control. The fourth thing it said was, 
that in healthy families, parents are, no, are not afraid to say, I was wrong. Now, I'm not going to take from this any type of parent-child relationship, but I just want to talk about the issue of, of all of us being unafraid to say that I was wrong. Anybody here ever been wrong before? Okay, me too. When somebody got upset at you and they said, you did this, this, and this, anybody ever ever say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. We shouldn't be afraid to do that. In families, there are too few parents that are willing to say, I was wrong. Number one, most parents, when they take a look at their relationship with their children, they work by this principle that I'm always right. And even in those few occasions when you can prove that I was wrong, there is no way that I should ever have to condescend to redress that wrong with my child. They're only kids, after all. But in healthy families, parents learn to apologize to their children and ask for forgiveness when they've done wrong things. It's almost a weekly occurrence at our house, sometimes daily. Because Marita does lots of stuff she has to apologize for. No, it's me. It's usually me. The point being that in our congregational family, we have to learn to be able to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse, beginning in verse 23, that's what this presents to us. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, this is, I remember that you have something against me. I have done something that has wronged or upset you. What do I do? Verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. What are you saying? The person who's serving Christ is quick to go and reconcile. When I know that I've done something against you and you're upset about it, the person who serves Christ, is, I'm supposed to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And I think that's a very important point to add on here. Not just I was wrong, but will you forgive me? We need to be willing to ask that. Will you forgive me? Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Romans 12, 3 teaches us that. Let's realize that we're all going to do things wrong. And so there's always going to be a point when every single one of us are going to have to go to somebody, and it's going to happen repeatedly. It's probably, there are probably, some of us as we're listening to this and thinking about this, we can think of something right now that we need to just go to somebody and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Because that's what happens in healthy families. The fifth key really connects in with that issue of communication. The most difficult time to communicate is when there's conflict. Healthy families choose conflict resolution over conflict avoidance. Very few of us like conflict. Most of us try to stay away from conflict. I know I do. I don't want to be in conflict with people. I don't want to have arguments. I don't, I don't like difficult situations. I would just, I would just assume steer clear of folks than, than to, to try to go through with some type of conflict. And we justify that in our minds, saying that that's how we're going to maintain peace. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause problems, so I'm not going to deal with this. We'll just avoid it. We'll overlook it. We'll sweep it under the rug, and everything will be okay. The problem is, when I avoid those conflicts, 
It doesn't maintain peace in the congregation. It builds bitterness and resentment inside. Can you think of somebody right now that you avoid because you don't want to have conflict? How do you feel about them? Are they the person that you just love? That you just have all sorts of feelings of well-being for them? Or is that the person that everything you hear about them, you filter through the light of your bitterness and resentment? You see, avoiding the conflict doesn't maintain peace and it doesn't maintain health. It increases a poison in our hearts that destroys the family eventually. Healthy families choose conflict resolution over conflict avoidance. That ties into the passage we just read in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talked about this whole issue of resolving and reconciling and come together. It began in verse 21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And we've already read about what we do when we know someone's upset at us. This talks about resolution of problem, not allowing you just to sit there in anger swelling up inside of us where we're bitter and resentful. And, and even if I don't share what I think about them with someone else, I, I'm thinking it in my mind about how much I don't like them and hate them and what losers and fools they are. That bitterness and that resentment, we're supposed to reconcile that and resolve that quickly. In fact, in Acts, we take a look at the Jerusalem church. Just recently, I preached a meeting in Chattanooga. And they asked for the series, which y'all may remember we went through last year, throughout the year, on the Jerusalem church. And one of the keys of Jerusalem's success was the fact that they quickly dealt with problems. In Acts chapter 6, they had a problem. The Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. And the folks didn't avoid it. They went to the apostles and said, we've got a problem. And the apostles didn't avoid it. They had the congregation come up with a solution. And they appointed other men to deal with this issue. And then in verse 7 it says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. It grew because they dealt with the problem. In Acts chapter 15, there was another problem in Jerusalem. There were folks teaching error. In Acts chapter 15, they were teaching that the Gentiles had to become Jews first before they could be Christians. They had to be circumcised. They were having to deal with this error. They didn't avoid it. They came together. They talked about it. They debated it, the text says. They had debate, dissension, disagreement. But by the time they were done dealing with it, they'd come to unity. Why? Because they didn't choose conflict avoidance. They didn't say, maybe if we look the other way, it'll go away. They faced it head on, and they resolved it. That's what healthy families do. Number six, healthy families make time to be with each other and to attend one another's events. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What was happening? They were spending time with one another. They were spending time together in their assemblies, but they were also spending time with one another from house to house. They were spending time together socializing. They were taking their meals together with gladness. They were doing social things. And they were doing spiritual things together. They were praising God together. But the point is that they were spending time with one another. How can we possibly win this battle against Satan if we're not spending time with other members of the army? 
How can we possibly overcome sin if we're trying to go it alone? There are amazing things that happen when we spend time with our brethren. We get to know one another. We learn one another. We learn to read one another. We can tell when somebody's having a problem and they don't have to miss the assembly five times before we know something's up. Because we've gotten to know them and learn them. And we've been able to worship with them and spend time studying God's Word with them. And now we know how to help them because we've had that time together. We need to spend time with one another. You know, one of the problems with families and this issue of time, is that sometimes we mistake spending time with one another for, with just being close to one another. And we'll, we'll go out and watch a movie. And while we're close and we're in the house together, we're not actually spending time with one another. We're not talking with one another. We're not learning anything about one another. We're just watching that screen. And sometimes I fear that's kind of the same thing that happens in congregations is that we come together for the assembly and we listen to the sermon together, but we're still not getting to know one another and getting to, to relearn one another. We've got to spend time together outside of this, studying together in smaller groups where we can have more conversation and dialogue with one another, just spending time socially together so we can just get to know one another. The Jerusalem Christians were doing that every day. And I know somebody's going to say, oh no, Edwin thinks we ought to be getting together with Christians every day. Well, I don't know, but... Shouldn't we kind of like to get together with these folks? At least for that amount of time, we'd be with a group of people that we know can't possibly or wouldn't exert evil influence on us just by the way they talk and the things they talk about enjoying and that sort of thing. At least we'll spend time with them and we won't have to listen to how they got drunk on Friday night. Or if they are confessing, we'll be there to help them. And that if we have to tell them about how we got drunk on Friday night, we'll know that they're there to help us. We need to spend that time with one another. And I'll just have just thought about this, talking about spending time with one another. In their list, they added this idea of being at their events. We think about this with our kids. I was talking with a friend of mine. We were talking about David Banning, who does a lot of work on teaching just the concept came up about possibly having him come for a weekend and do some things for us on teaching, and I don't know if we're going to do that or not, but I called him just to do some preliminary discussion with him. He said, well, i just got to let you know that this coming fall is my son's senior year, and he's the drum major on the, in the band, and so I have to be at home for the football games on Friday night. And uh, I'm not going to get into all the issues about where our priorities need to be, but... He understood something, that where he can be in control of his schedule, he wants to be at his son's events. What about us? Wouldn't a great way for us to spend time together is to find out one another's events and be there? Maybe it's not our child that's having the concert. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Mark and Tim's child that's having the concert. Or, or Kurt and Michelle's. Wouldn't it be nice for us to be there? I, I know that for me, when I go hold meetings... I remember in Beaumont that I held a meeting that was nearby to the congregation. And one of the things I most appreciated was that brethren from the congregation, even though they had heard all the sermons before, attended. And they were attending not because they were going to hear a new sermon, but because they were wanting to support me. And I appreciated that. Would you appreciate that if you had something that you were involved in and brethren came just to, say, just to show support? 
I mean, maybe you're on a softball team and they came to your game, or, or maybe you're, I don't know, making a speech somewhere. I think we ought to do that. Spending time with one another and being at one another's events to show support. The seventh key, families have a corporate responsibility to all members. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And verse 4. Paul said, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Did you catch what it said there? We're not just members of the body. We're not just individual members of the club that pay our dues and show up to the meetings every once in a while and everything's okay. We are members of one another. When we enter this relationship with Christ and we come into the congregation, we are now intricately linked with each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26 demonstrates what this means. It says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In 1 Corinthians 12, it was using our physical bodies as an illustration of the church body. And it pointed out that when one part suffers, it's not just one lone part of the body that just that, that, that it's suffering and everything else is okay. When one part of the body suffers, the whole thing suffers. You ever had a toothache? That's just one little tooth right here. Is the pain just about what's just there in your mouth? Or does it just kind of take over? You know what I'm saying? That, that's, the, that's what it's pointing out, that when one little part of our body hurts, it affects everything in our body. And that's the way it is within the congregation. We are members of one another. And because of that, we have a corporate responsibility to one another. What this is pointing out is that it's not about me. Now that I am a member of the family, my life is no longer about me. It's not about just me reaching my goals and my aspirations and my desires. It's about me maintaining my responsibility to the brethren, to the family of which I am a part. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, I think helps us understand what this means. Therefore, Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Far too often we make our decisions based on what I want. But in a healthy family, we recognize our responsibility to the corporate group and to the members of that group because we are members of one another. And what we do impacts and affects the entire body. And so as we decide the choices we're going to make, we give consideration to that. Putting the needs and wants of others before ourselves and before our own needs and wants. These are the marks of a healthy family, the marks of a healthy church family. How are we doing? How are we doing? Are we working on that marriage relationship with Christ? And through that, working on a healthy relationship with one another, communicating, resolving conflicts, being there with and for one another? 
If I were having to grade this, I would say that we're, I'd say we're relatively healthy, but, but we've got room to grow. And isn't that the way everybody is, really? So let us think about these things and, and move into the future, focusing on being not just a group of people that come together every once in a while, but a family. that loves and submits to God and to one another. If everybody were just like you, how would we be doing? I know we all have work to do. Let's get at it.